hello again everyone welcome back to the podcast uh, today we're diving back into the world of philosophy and today we're going to be talking about Bertrand Russell and the uh, analytic philosophers now understand that you're not going to have a full grasp of the analytic philosophers or even Bertrand Russell after this session uh, this is just kind of getting you a little into what kinds of ideas they talk about what kinds of approach they take to philosophy and to understanding the world and actually what I'm talking about today is just one chapter from uh, one of Russell's smaller books called uh, Introduction to Mathematical Philosophy so this is basically just a really brief introduction now keep in mind that as the seasons progress we will be doing long sessions, many, many sessions on each of these thinkers, on each of these writers, uh, on each of these traditions. Uh, but for now, I'm, I'm still just kind of getting you into the uh, world of philosophy and into the world of literature. So, as I said, today we're in the world of philosophy and we're going to be talking about Bertrand Russell. Now, in his uh, introduction, he talks about what the difference is between um, traditional ways of studying mathematics and the philosophical way of studying mathematics. And one of the things that he talks about is the traditional ways where you start with simpler, with simple mathematic con mathematical concepts and you move into more and more complex mathematics as you go. This is sort of the traditional route you would take into if, if you were studying math in school. The philosopher takes a little bit different approach, and one of the examples that he gives is that, you know, they're all using the same concepts, the same ideas. It just depends on their focus. For the regular mathematician, the focus is solving equations, solving more and more complex mathematical problems. For the mathematical philosopher, they're looking for the foundation, for the grounding, um, you know, where did these ideas come from and how do we ground them? And a lot of the analytic philosophers were trying to do this. They were trying to ground mathematics in logic, but also trying to ground logic itself because they felt if they could get mathematics firmly grounded in logic, if they could get the other forms of logic as precise, then they could solve all of the philosophical problems. And as you notice, they go about this the same way every philosopher does. I don't know if you've noticed, but it seems like every single philosopher wants to go back to the start and go back to the foundation and figure out, you know, what is the basis of all of this? How do we know what we know? And the analytic philosophers are no different. Russell is no different. He wants to ground uh, the logic of mathematics and then in doing so ground regular logic. Now, as I was saying, the example he gives would be the uh, study of geometry he talks about. <clears throat> you have the you know, regular study of geometry that you probably had in school, um, but then there were the people who actually took the concepts of Egyptian land surveying and tried to find what were the basic underlying principles, what were the basic axioms underneath this, so that they could ground it in um, certainty and then build the mathematical formulas off of that. 
So you see they're dealing with the same issues. They're just going in different directions. The mathematical philosophers were the ones who laid the groundwork for Euclid's geometry. And then Euclid's geometry, as people study that, you know, that becomes more of the traditional way of studying mathematics. So this, this is a difference of focus. And as, as I said, it's, philosophers are always looking for the foundation. If you remember just a couple of episodes ago when we talked about Edmund Husserl, Husserl was trying to ground phenomenological experience so that he could build all of the sciences and you know all of our perceptions off of this solid grounding. Russell's doing the same thing with mathematics. And in the first chapter, he starts out with the uh, series of natural numbers. And the natural numbers are basically the numbers 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, etc. Um, and he tries to uh, talk about, you know, how this is actually something very complicated. You know, we think of this as a very simple uh, concepts, but when you go back and realize at some point humans had to be able to come up with the idea that there was something about two cows and two rocks and two bowls and two people. There was some element of that that was the same in all of those things. You know, they had to be able to have the abstract thinking of the concept of two. And this is really something that is pretty advanced, even though we think of it as something pretty simple. You know, for the first people to figure it out, you got to remember they weren't taught their numbers. They weren't taught one, two, three, four, five, etc. They just started noticing that you could group things and group them by number. And so this is a very complex thought. And in fact, one of the things that gives you how complex it is, is if you look at the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans, they didn't even have the concept of zero. The concept of zero is something that comes along later from Middle Eastern mathematicians, from Indian mathematicians. Um, you know, it, it, it isn't something that is originally part of Greek and Roman numbers. Um, and if any of you are familiar with Roman numerals, um, be thankful we have Arabic numerals to do math with. Um, just try to visualize in your head how hard not only addi addition and subtraction would be with Roman numerals, but multiplication, division, things like that. All of the things that become much simpler with the Arabic numerals that we use. <clears throat> so there is a lot of things that we take for granted, and this is one of the things that philosophy always tries to get away from. Now, why does philosophy try to get away with this? Most people would say, hey, it works, don't rock the boat. Um, but philosophers are people who always want to know, why does this work? You know, and does this work as well as we think it does? Or can we find things that work even better? You know, this is one of the things about philosophy, and this is why philosophy is the springboard for all of the sciences, all of the natural sciences, the social sciences. They all have their origin in philosophy. And that's because philosophy has this constant quest, this constant desire to see if the foundations we're using 
are the best foundations, to see if they're solid foundations, or to see if we're just fooling ourselves and living in a delusion. And Russell is one of the ones that, again, he's in the analytic tradition, and they're working towards this with numbers. Now, one of the um, mathematicians that he cites is he talks about um, the five primitive propositions of uh, Pino, um, who was a mathematician, um, of numbers, the, the five primitive propositions about numbers. You got to remember these are early, so, but these are the five propos uh, propositions that he came up with. The first one is that zero is a number. The second one is the successor of any number is a number. Uh, the third one, no two numbers have the same successor. The fourth one, uh, zero is not the successor of any number. Uh, the fifth one, any property which belongs to zero and also to the successor of every number which has the property belongs to all numbers. Okay, let me go back for the people who are not mathematicians and kind of break this down into simpler terms. Um, so he starts with zero. He says zero is a number. That part's pretty easy. The successor of any number is a number. So the successor is any number that anything that comes after the number. So if zero is a number, one is the successor, so one is also a number. Two comes after one, so two is also a number. Three comes after two, and so forth. And this can be done for infinity. We don't have a highest number. The numbers can keep just getting larger and larger. There is no end point for numbers where you have the largest number we can have because you can always add digits. Um, no two numbers have the same successor. That means 2 and 3 won't have the same number that comes after them. 3 comes after 2, 4 comes after 3. So no two numbers will have the same successor as each other. This just means they all have a unique identity and they all have a, an identity that is sequential. Now the next idea, zero is not the successor of any number. Now this is something you have to remember that negative numbers are not considered natural numbers. Um, those are again something that's an even more complex notion to have negative something. So this is strictly dealing with positive numbers, zero and so forth, one, two, three, four, and so forth. So nothing can come before zero in the natural numbers. Uh, any property which belongs to zero and also to the successor of every number which has the property belongs to all the numbers. And this is a little bit um, this is a little bit complicated but not really. Basically what he's saying is whatever it is about zero that makes zero a number. Um, is true of all of the other numbers. Uh, whatever it is about zero that makes zero a number is also true about one and makes it a number is also true about five. So it's pointing at this abstract quality of what exactly makes a number. <clears throat> now the book does go on and give you obviously a lot more uh, areas and what he's trying to do with this book again, is to, one, ground mathematical logic in philosophy 
so that we can get to this certainty of mathematics, and then two, start to build a logic that we can apply outside of mathematics that will have the same degree of certainty. And basically, the analytic philosophers felt that anything you can't talk about with that kind of certainty becomes an issue that is nonsense. As you can probably tell, the analytic philosophers start to run into problems. Um, even Russell starts to run into problems with his ideas about mathematics being you know, perfectly logical. And one of the ways that he comes into this is he talks about sets of numbers. And in sets of numbers, um, I don't want to go too much into math for this, but in sets of numbers, you always have sort of a grouping of numbers. And there are certain things that belong in that set and other things that belong outside of that set. So do not belong in that set. So let's say the set of um, odd numbers uh, that are single digit would be 1, 3, 5, 7, 9. That's the set. Anything outside of that doesn't belong in that set. Um, and so this is, uh, this is what sets of numbers deal with. Now, when you try to work, move into the world of logic, Russell comes up with a paradox. He comes up with it with numbers, and then he comes up with a, a kind of a, a one with words that makes it a little easier to understand. It's called the barber's paradox. Every person, every male, uh, in this town that doesn't shave himself is shaved by the barber. So who shaves the barber? Um, I guess you could, you, to make it a true paradox, you would have to say the barber is a male because the barber could be a female. Uh, um, every male in this town who does not shave himself is shaved by the barber who is also a male. So who shaves the barber? Well, if he shaves himself, then he's not shaved by the barber. If he doesn't shave himself, then he should be shaved by the barber. But he can't be because that's him. This is a paradox. This is something that is not solvable logically. And Russell realized that if you have paradoxes with numbers, you're also going to have paradox, paradoxes that come up in the external world of non-numbers. And this is one of the problems with analytic philosophy is that the level of certainty, the level of definitiveness that it wants to have is impossible. It wants to be able to say everything that's important we can break down in deductive logic. And then it starts to run into these paradoxes and realizes, no, you can't. And also, you know, one of the things that we've talked about in uh, earlier episodes is when we talked about inductive and deductive logic is inductive logic or deductive logic has very limited application. Uh, deductive logic is completely useless when you have questions like um, what's the best political system? What's the best economic system? What's the best choice for someone to marry? What's the best flavor of ice cream even? You know, none of these things can be solved with deductive logic. So you have to use inductive logic. <clears throat> and in inductive logic, you can never have certainty. You can have, as we talked about, a thousand true premises and in inductive logic. 
and say, therefore, A is the answer. And then somebody else can come along with a thousand true premises and inductive logic and say, therefore, B is the answer. And they both gave you all true premises and they both came up with a different solution. Um, that's one of the problems with induction is that it never gives certainty. Now, if you remember when we talked about Hume um, way back in earlier episodes, uh, Hume comes up with what's called the inductive fallacy. And this inductive fallacy is a problem of um, certainty. Just because something always happened in the past does not mean that it will happen in the future. It may have been coincidence um, or some unknown factor may change so it stops being the case. Just because every time I dropped a book, it fell to the floor, and everybody else, every time they dropped a book, it fell to the floor, does not mean that will always be the case. Perhaps um, it's, it's been a factor we didn't know about. Perhaps gravity is something that is a limited phenomenon that doesn't, it isn't eternal. It only happens for a certain amount of time, and then at some point gravity just reverses or doesn't work at all. Now this this actually is terrifying if you think about it. Um, and you know this doesn't mean that everything is up in the air and there's no way to have you know any way of making decisions. Most of the philosophers that come you know after Hume and including Hume you know agree that well you still got to live your life. You know you can't step off the edge of a building hoping that eh, maybe gravity will stop working now. Um, you know, you have to use inductive to make your decision, but you're also at the point where you can never be certain that the outcome will be what you predict it to be. And this is what the analytic philosophers really wanted to overthrow. They really wanted to get beyond these um, uncertainties. And, and again, this is this is one of the things that philosophy always does. That's why it tries to find solid foundations. And then once it finds a solid foundation, it can build up from that solid foundation. And if you're careful every step of the way, you should be able to explain everything perfectly well. There's a lot of problems with this. This falls apart all over the place. Um, one of the main reasons it falls apart so much is that our perspective is limited to human perspective, uh, which means there's a whole lot of things going on, even around us right now, that we are completely unaware of. We can't feel them, we can't sense them, see them, smell them, hear them, and yet these things are occurring and having an influence on things that we do experience. Um, you know, this is things like gravity, it's attraction over distance. There are things in quantum mechanics where particles that are not next to each other somehow can communicate their positioning uh, faster than the speed of light. And so there is forces and interconnectivities that we don't understand. Um, maybe we will someday, maybe we won't. Um, but this has always been one of the limiting factors of sciences and the philosophies. And again, this doesn't mean all ideas are equal. You know, I 
a lot of 20th and 21st century philosophers have wanted to make that leap and say, well, therefore, since you can't have any certainty, you can believe whatever you want, you can do whatever you want, every opinion is equally valid. No, that, that doesn't turn out to be the case. If one person has the idea that, you know, eating uh, lead, pounds and pounds of lead every day is good for you, and another person believes that you should probably eat fruits and vegetables and grains and some meat and some dairy, I guarantee you the person with the fruits, vegetables, meat, and dairy diet is going to outlive the person who's eating pounds of lead every day. Those ideas are not equally valid. One of them will actually work, and one of them actually will not. Now, does that mean the person who eats fruits and vegetables will necessarily live longer? No. Because there's always the chance that that person could get hit by a bus or they could have had a heart condition they didn't know about and drop dead. And the person who was eating the lead manages to hold on a few more days. Um, but that doesn't mean these positions are even. That doesn't mean these positions are equally valid. Um, we do have to make the best decisions we can. And where analytic philosophy does become useful is it does help us to lean towards the better ideas. It does help us to uh, evaluate a lot of them. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And figure out which ideas have more weight. Um, where it fails is it in its desire to be 100% um, right, 100% provable, 100%, you know, explaining everything. This is the place where it fails. And this is the place where everything fails. Every, every philosophy, every science, every idea will always hit its limit. And one of the ways I usually think about this is this doesn't mean that oh, we should just throw them all away. Think of it, and I've used this analogy before, like using tools. Tools are always limited by what they're designed to do. Yes, you can find some novel uses for them, but a screwdriver is always going to work better for removing a screw than a hammer, unless you want to destroy whatever the, the screw is screwed into. Uh, same thing, a hammer is going to be much better at pounding a nail in than a screwdriver is. A uh, hammer and a screwdriver are not going to be very good either one at unplugging a uh, clogged toilet. You know, you, you have to understand the tool you're using, think about what are the limits of that tool, and then if it can be expanded, expand the limits and use what's appropriate. And this is why I honestly believe in studying different kinds of science, different kinds of philosophy. You know, it, it gives you different perspectives on sometimes the same problem, and then sometimes they deal with problems that are completely different. So some of the philosophy problems in existentialism um, and some of the problems in analytic philosophy don't really have much overlap with each other. They're very different things that they're going for. Other problems they deal with do have overlap. Same thing with pragmatism. Some of the things pragmatism uh, deals with doesn't have as much overlap with existentialism and analytic philosophy. Other parts of it, though, do have overlap with those two disciplines. Okay, I'm going to break off uh, there for tonight. Uh, I didn't want to bury you too much with analytical. Uh, Bertrand Russell is a very good read. 
He's someone you're going to have to read very slowly, though, especially if you're not a math and logic person. Um, but he does have some of his works that are much more accessible. He is a very accessible writer to most readers. Uh, some of the philosophy writers, unless you're really versed in philosophy, you're, you're going to come across what they're doing and go, I, I don't even know where I'm supposed to start to get out of this. And that's part of what this podcast is trying to do for you. Uh, I'm trying to give you introductions into these different ways of looking at things, these different types of philosophies, these different thinkers, so that as you come across them, they're not um, completely unknown, and you, you can start to get a little bit of a bearing and dig into them on your own. And as I said earlier in the podcast, and I've said before, we are going to dig into all of these philosophers and all of these writers and all of these traditions in much more depth in future seasons. Um, but right now, still trying to just make sure everybody's got a good overall grasp of what's going on. Okay, uh, I will talk to you all again soon. I hope all of you are doing well, and I hope all of you are staying safe. Have a good night.